In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The immediate practical implication of the theory of everything is nothing. It's not going to affect you and me. I'll be very blunt about it. However, It'll answer some of the deepest philosophical, religious questions of all time. Uh, was there a beginning? Uh, what happened before the beginning? What happened before Genesis? It could answer these questions once and for all, whether there are other universes, whether there are gateways to these other universes. And then, of course, I often get the question, if there are other universes, then is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? And the answer is, yes, he could very well still be alive, not in our universe, but in another parallel universe, he could still be belting out those hits, hit after hit. That's Michio Kaku, who has taken up the challenge that frustrated even Albert Einstein, the challenge to find a theory of everything, or as he puts it in his new book with his characteristic flair for capturing our attention, to discover the God equation. Michio Kaku is a major proponent of string theory, the idea that all of matter is made up of tiny, vibrating, rubber band-like strings. And he believes the field is on track to reveal, as he puts it, the mind of God. This is so great to be talking with you today because you are so fantastic as a communicator. Your, your books are so, so readable that I find myself going back over sentences just to see how you did it. Did, <laughs> Thank did you. you. Did you did you find you had this talent, or did you work on it studiously? Well, you know, um, I go back to what Einstein once said, that uh, unless a theory can be explained to a child, the theory is probably useless, meaning that <laughs> every theory has a principle, a picture a, a simple capsulization that even children can understand. So I try to strive for that. I try to strive for being able to explain something such that a child should be able to understand the basic picture. Because physics is based on pictures. Newton had balls going around other balls. Um, Einstein had lightning bolts and trains and clocks. Very pictorial. So I try to, in my writing, use that Einstein phrase that it has to be explained to a child. Well, you're barking up the right tree with me, so I'm <laughs> glad you're 
<laughs> I'm glad you're following that principle. Mm-hmm. Your latest book, The God Equation, talks about the theory of everything, right? That mm-hmm. Einstein spent most of the last part of his life 30 years, trying yeah. to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and was apparently unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. What interests me about that is what will change if we do get a theory of everything, if we figure out something that combines all the forces known to us in one equation, what, what's going to happen? What will be different? Will it matter? Well, you know, when Newton worked out mechanics and the law of gravity, that laid the foundation for the industrial revolution. Locomotives, steam engines, mills, factories, all of them based on Newtonian mechanics. And then Maxwell and Faraday worked out electricity and magnetism, and that gave us the electric age, uh, dynamos, generators, uh, television. And then when Einstein gave us E equals MC squared, that unified matter and energy, and that unlocked the secret of the stars, you know, why the sun shines. However, I'll be very blunt about this. We're now talking about universes. We're not talking about locomotives and engines and television anymore. We're talking about the universe itself. So the immediate practical implication of the theory of everything is nothing. It's not going to affect you <laughs> and me. I'll be very blunt well, about it. Well, it's been nice talking with you. I'm right. glad to have seen you. <laughs> However, it'll answer some of the deepest philosophical, religious questions of all time. Uh, was there a beginning? Uh, what happened before the beginning? What happened before Genesis? Or a black hole? Is there a white hole that's on the other side of a black hole? Or are there other universes? Are there gateways? Are there Einstein roads and bridges connecting our universe to another universe? None of these questions can be answered using the old Einsteinian theory. But you see, that's where string theory comes in, which is, of course, the subject of the book. It could answer these questions once and for all, whether there are other universes, whether there are gateways to these other universes. And then, of course, I often get the question, if there are other universes, then is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? And the answer is yes. He could very well still be alive, not in our universe, but in another parallel universe, he could still be belting out those hits, hit after hit, in another universe. So let's talk about this theory that you've dedicated your life to, and to a great extent, string theory. The idea, do I have this right in a nutshell, that the tiniest things are not atoms or particles. Even tinier than that are little things, string-like things that vibrate. And when they vibrate at a certain frequency, you get a proton. At another frequency, you get an electron and so on. Is that close? My God, you got it right. If I had a super microscope and could peer into an electron, it would not be a dot. It would be a rubber band. And when you twang the rubber band, it vibrates at a different frequency, and it turns into a neutrino. You twang it again, it vibrates, the rubber band turns into a quark. And so how many frequencies does the rubber band have? An infinite number of frequencies, depending upon how you vibrate it. And why does it vibrate at a certain frequency? Um, I can hold down a violin string at a certain point and shorten the string and make it vibrate 
by plucking it or drawing a bow across it, who draws the bow? What draws the bow across a celestial superstring or string of any kind? Well, people ask the question, uh, what is a string made of anyway? Um, yeah. You cannot answer that question because it is the thing out of which everything else is made of. The closest you could come is to say that it's a condensation of energy. It is basically pure energy condensed into a string, and it has energy. Energy means that it vibrates. So where does the vibration come from? It comes from the fact that it is energy personified. It is the concentration of energy. It is that out of which everything else is made. And as Pythagoras noticed, there are an infinite number of vibrations you can make on these vibrating strings. And each vibration is a note, A, B flat, C sharp, and they are arranged in octaves. So we are the lowest octave of the string. Everything you see around us is music of the lowest octave, but there are higher vibrations of the string. We think that dark matter, for example, which holds the galaxy together, an invisible substance which makes up most of the matter of the universe, is nothing but a higher vibration, a higher vibration of the string, and just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, big news from Fermilab outside Chicago, they found that maybe there could be a new particle out there, a new force, a fifth force that they've detected with the, with the Fermilab detectors. And that could be, again, another vibration of the string. And so we think that physics is therefore the harmonies, the harmonies you could write on this rubber band. Chemistry is the melodies you can play when these rubber bands bump into each other. Mm -hmm. The universe is a symphony of these strings. And then the mind of God that Albert Einstein spent 30 years of his life writing about, the mind of God would be cosmic music, cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That would be the mind of God. So in other words, Pythagoras 2,000 years ago had it right. 2,000 years ago, the great geometer Pythagoras said that music, music is the paradigm rich enough to explain the vast variety of forms that we see around us. What else is rich enough to do that? Music, he said. But that theory never went anywhere. The Roman Empire fell apart, and for a thousand years, we were thrown into darkness, superstition, and magic. But now we're reviving the old Pythagorean idea that, ma that music is rich enough to explain the diversity, the rich diversity of matter that we see around us. But it's the music of subatomic particles. So my questions about this may not be answerable because the theory may not uh, have delved into this yet. <clears throat> but when you say it, it, the strings are like rubber bands, does that mean they're always circular or do they stretch out some great length sometimes? <laughs> Sometimes they break, and in which case you can have strings connecting other, other strings. Uh, they have tremendous gyrations, then we're still trying to catalog all the different possibilities. And also strings can connect with membranes. Uh, this is new. Uh, the fact that membranes like a beach ball or an apple or a sphere uh, are also solutions of this equation. So meaning that we have a theory of strings and membranes, and uh, they vibrate in 11 dimensions. So these are not ordinary membranes. And our universe, 
our universe could very well be a membrane. A three-dimensional membrane could be the most accurate description of our universe. So Einstein gave us a picture that our universe is a bubble of some sort or a membrane. It's expanding. We live on the skin of the bubble, and that's called the Big Bang Theory. String theory says there are other universes out there. And when these universes collide, that could be the Big Bang. Or when they split in half, that could be the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So we have a bubble bath of universes or membranes, and they float. They float in a much larger arena. You know, children at a science museum say, Mommy, Daddy, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? Well, if our universe is a three-dimensional membrane, it's expanding in a higher dimension, up to 11 dimensions. And so we think that the multiverse is a bubble bath in 11 dimensions, and that universes are being born even as we speak. Even as we started this conversation, universes have been born. Big bangs have taken place far, far away. <laughs> Fortunately, far away. We don't want to be too close. Well, you've already got me stupefied. There's something in your book that puzzled me. As a matter of fact, for days I would go to sleep trying to understand, trying to get a picture of curved space. <laughs> right. That's not easy. And finally, finally I, I, I realized I hadn't included time, space, time. And right around that point, I just became unconscious and I was able to go to sleep. <laughs> well, I like to... Put it this way, uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare once said that uh, everything is a stage. And we are actors and actresses making our entrances and exits. That's the Newtonian idea. The Newtonian idea is that space is flat, unmoving, uncurved, and we are actors basically on the stage of life. That's the Newtonian, uh, Shakespearean way to look at things. The Einsteinian way is that the floor the floor of the stage is warped. And when you walk in a straight line, you are pushed to the left, pushed to the right, because the floor is curved. So you might say there's a force, a force pushing you to the left, pushing you to the right, but there's no force at all. The, the floor is warped. That's why you have this force of gravity. Or another way is take a sheet of paper and crumple it and put some ants on it. When ants move on a crumpled sheet of paper, the ants would say there's a force. There's a force pushing me to the left, pushing me to the right. But we know there's no force at all. It's just a crumpled sheet of paper. And so Einstein said, aha, that's what gravity is. Gravity is nothing but the effect of space and time being warped. So the stage of life, the stage of life is warped and you cannot move in a straight line. So that leads to the sentence from your book that gave me no end of uh, consternation, <laughs> which, which, is, which is gravity does not pull, space pushes. That's right. So, well, if gravity's not there, what's making space curve? Well, why does it push? Well, why am I sitting in the chair? Normally, you would say that gravity is pulling me down into the chair, and that's why I'm sitting in this right. chair right now. But there's a second way to look at it. You can also assume that the space around me is curved and pushing me, pushing me into the chair. So in that sense, gravity does not pull because there's no such thing as gravitational pull. It's an illusion. Space is curved, and space could push me 
into the chair. So that's why you're sitting in a chair right now, because the space around you is warped by the Earth's gravitational field and is pushing you into the chair. That's the part. You just said the part that I don't get. <laughs> and I'm hoping if I get it, a multitude of people listening will get it too. Mm-hmm. If space only curves in the presence of some mass That's right. that we consider to be pulling us down, it sounds like it's pulling space down too. It's it's making space curved so that the the guilty person in all of this is not the curvature of space. It's what's making space curve, which is the mass, which is what we call pulling us down to Earth. Now, well, can you can you unbend my mind on that? Well, you got it right. Matter, like your body, okay, is causing a distortion of the space around you. The Earth, being much bigger, is causing the distortion of space around you in a much bigger way. So the origin of this curvature is mass. But once it creates the curvature, it then causes things to warp. And so why does the Earth go around the sun? First, the sun warps the space around it, around the Earth. The Earth then moves in this curved space due to the sun's gravity. So where did it come from? It came from the sun. The sun warps the space around the Earth. And what happens to the Earth? It goes in a circle. So why does it go in a circle? because it's being pushed by the bent space created by the sun. So that's how it works. So it sounds like you're saying the mass of Earth is round already because the center of it is pulling it, it has warped space around it, pushing the Earth into a globe. Right. And that curved space is also pushing me down onto the Earth. I think you got it. That's it. The Earth is warping the space around you, and that warped space in turn is causing you to be pushed into your chair, and that's why you're not flung out at a 1,000 miles per hour, which is the velocity of us going around the Earth. We're not flung into outer space because the space around us, created by the Earth, is pushing us toward the Earth. Well, it may be you've made it possible for me to sleep tonight. (laughs) I think you got it. No, I think you got it. (laughs) When we come back from our break, Michio Kaku explores the idea that we exist in our universe only through an incredibly lucky break. And he wonders about the chances of there being others in the universe who were equally lucky, as well as whether our luck will hold. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. 
On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Michio Kaku. When you were talking about the effect of these discoveries on our lives, every big revolution in understanding nature seems to have given us a benefit, a change in our lives. But it also, at the same time, has given us a challenge in every, I think, in every instance. The Industrial Revolution, we're only discovering a couple of hundred years later, is changing the climate of our planet. And unless we do something about that, it will be severely damaging to our lives. The obvious threat of nuclear warfare is a challenge as well. So my question is, do you believe, do you believe that science has a responsibility to think about the possible negative effects every time a new discovery is made? The way, for instance, Jennifer Doudna has cautioned everybody against a misuse of CRISPR, the gene editing tool. Well, what's your feeling about that? Well, see, science is a sword. It's a double-edged sword. One side of the sword can cut against ignorance, poverty, disease. It can create wealth of society. The other side of the sword can cut against people. The key question is who wields the sword and for what purpose? So this is where democracy comes in. But democracies have to be educated. They can't simply wield the sword of science without understanding why it's potentially dangerous or why it's potentially uh, great in terms of unleashing uh, prosperity onto society. And so I think you're right. Everyone has to take, take into account the fact that um, there could be a drawback to some of these technologies. Let me explain. When I was in high school, I was in the National Science Fair, and I earned the attention of Edward Teller. Edward Teller was the father of the hydrogen bomb, and he took me under his wing and he wanted me to design hydrogen warheads. Well, I was offered a job designing hydrogen warheads, but I said, no, I don't want to design hydrogen warheads. I would rather work on something even bigger, the Big Bang. 
an even bigger explosion. But <laughs> I remember one thing he told me. He said that nuclear power plants are very, very powerful, very good, but they are potentially dangerous, so they do not belong on the surface of the earth. They belong underground. In other words, if you have a Chernobyl or a Fukushima or a Three Mile Island, you simply put the manhole cover on it and walk away because everything is underground. And so it impressed to me the fact that technologies are powerful, but they have to be used correctly or else you will have a catastrophe. We have to have democratic control over these technologies or else a handful of people will make decisions without realizing the social consequences of these decisions. Another important reason why your ability to communicate so that people can understand what their options are is extremely important. Well, thank you. I think we have the, to we have to speak the language of the masses. Uh, let me give you another example of sometimes why we have to speak the language of people. In the 1990s, we had the super collider, even bigger than the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. But it was it had cost overruns. And on the last day of hearings, a congressman asked the physicist, quote, will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. Well, the poor physicist didn't know what to say. So he said, we're going to find the Higgs boson. Well, all the jaws hit the floor in the United States Congress. Billions of dollars for another goddamn subatomic particle. The vote was taken, the super collider was canceled, and American physics at the high level was set back two generations. Now, since then, we physicists have asked the question, how should we have answered that question? Will we find God with your machine? I would have said this. I would have said, God, by whatever signs or symbols you ascribe to the deity, this machine, the super collider, will take us as close as humanly possible to his greatest creation, Genesis. This is a Genesis machine. It will recreate on a small scale the greatest event in the history of the universe, its birth. Unfortunately, we said Higgs boson, and American physics was sent back two generations. <laughs> the moral of the story is we have to speak the language of people. We have to understand where people are because they pay our taxes. I mean, we pay, they're the taxpayer that funds our work. In the old days, we physicists would go to Congress and say one word, Russia. And then Congress would come back to us and say two words, how much? Those days are gone. <laughs> we can't <laughs> rely on the Cold War to fund our machines anymore. So we have to learn to speak the language of people. There's one other notion that I'm curious about. I've, I've read about it for a few years now. The anthropic principle. Mm -hmm. There's an anthropic principle and a weak anthropic principle. Would you, would you tell me how you feel about either version of it and what it is to you? Well, when I was in second grade, my second grade teacher said something that I'll never forget. She said that God so loved the earth that he put the earth just right from the sun. Not too close, oceans of oil. Not too far, the oceans of freeze. Now, I said to myself, oh my God, that's right. 
This was the first time I had ever heard a scientific principle explained to me. <laughs> and so her conclusion, of course, was that God exists. However, now we have discovered 4,000 planets going around other star systems, and most of them are too close. Most of them are too far. So we on the Earth won the crapshoot. In other words, it's a gamble. So the anthropic principle, there's two ways you can look at it. Either that is just luck, sheer luck that we're here just right from the sun. It's a crapshoot. Or perhaps there's a design. Perhaps there's a meaning for it that we are just right from the sun. And so the, the strong version of the anthropic principle says that there was a designer. It was meant to be this way. God designed it so that things are just right. A weaker form simply says that, well, we're here because of a series of accidents. Good thing that there were these accidents, otherwise we wouldn't be here to begin with. And it shows that the universe is really kind toward intelligent life. Intelligent life is so hard to create. It's actually quite difficult to create conscious life on a planet. Of the 4,000 planets that we've looked so far, not a single one is exactly Earth-like. They're super-Earths, but none are exactly like the Earth. And so we think that in the galaxy, perhaps in the galaxy, there are only a handful of twins, a handful of twins that have conscious life, consciousness on those planets. So the, a weaker version of the anthropic principle simply says that consciousness is rare, but not unique, that there probably are other aliens out there that are conscious and are fully recognizing the fact that the anthropic principle has a weakness, but it's rare. We are special in that sense. So the, we the weakest version of the, of the anthropic principle simply says we're special. We're not ordinary. Most planets are dead. Most planets have no life on them. We see no evidence of life so far in any of the planets. They have conditions where they are have oceans that are too close or too far. So the weak version of the anthropic principle simply says we are special. Now, the opposite point of view is the Copernican principle. The Copernican principle says we're not special at all, period. That is nothing <laughs> but a cosmic crapshoot. That's all it is. I tend to lean more toward the weak anthropic principle, which simply says we are special. We're not necessarily unique, but we are special. We're pretty special, at least to us. <laughs> there may be, there may be um, uh, animals on this planet and on other planets who might not uh, think we're that special. But something that I wonder about with regard to our specialness is that I've been told by scientists that the average life of a species is about two million years. The question that I often pose at dinner tables, and I'm so curious to hear your answer, is as a species, do we have any hope of being average? Will we be here two million years after we began as us? Well, you know, uh, the Russian physicist uh, Nikolai Kardashev tried to categorize higher civilizations billions of years into the future. A type one civilization is planetary. They control the weather. Uh, phenomena like volcanoes, earthquakes, they can influence. They're planetary in terms of their energy. Type two would be stellar. They consume the entire energy output of the sun 
and they use that for their machines. Sort of like Star Trek would be a Type II civilization. Then there's Type III, which is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They control black holes, sort of like Star Wars. Now, on this scale, what are we? Do we control the weather? Do we control the sun? Do we control the galaxy? <laughs> no, we are type zero. We don't even rate <laughs> on this scale. We're just type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, for God's sake, oil and coal. We can't control hardly anything. And so then the question is, uh, well, how close are we to becoming type one? We're about 100 years from being type one. We're a few thousand years from becoming type two, and maybe a million years from becoming type three. And so looking on this cosmic scale, if we can if we can weather these climactic problems and become type two, we become immortal. A type two civilization is immortal. They can deflect asteroids. They control the weather, like global warming can be controlled. Um, they can uh, leave the planet. If the sun turns supernova, they can leave the planet and go into outer space. But we are type zero. We are definitely vulnerable. We are vulnerable because of three things, uh, global warming, nuclear proliferation, and a global pandemic. Three ways in which we can do ourselves in uh, because we're vulnerable as type zero. But if we can make it, if we can make it to type one and type two, then we become immortal. It leads into our seven quick questions with which we end our shows. What do you wish you really understood well, I really wish I understood the creation of the universe uh, because that is where all the forces of the universe originated from, and that's where we come from. So I'd like to understand why we're here to begin with. Why is there something versus nothing? Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, I try to find commonality. I try to understand where they're coming from. Uh, because they have a reasoning process. In their mind, they think they're right. In their mind, they have a process by which they can justify it. So the first thing is I, I try to get into their head. I try to find out what is clicking along in their head, because they're coming out with a different premise, a different foundation. What are the foundational questions that they believe in, which differ from my own, if I'm going to get into, like, for example, an argument with them? What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, well, the strangest question is when people ask me if they've ever been kidnapped by a flying saucer, and uh, they believe that the aliens are here already. And my, my advice to them is that if they've ever been kidnapped by a flying saucer, for God's sake, steal something. I don't care whether it's <laughs> an alien chip, an alien hammer, steal something. There's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial civilization. You're not going to go to jail. And you'll end the debate right then and there. An alien ship would end the whole debate about flying saucers right there. So that's for, the, for those people who say they've been kidnapped. And there are millions of them. Fine. The next time you're kidnapped, steal something. <laughs> next. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, I would, <laughs> I would, first of all, agree with them and say, yes, huh. oh, I understand. Oh, is that right? Oh, I didn't know. Because then they realize that, you know, I'm at least listening to them. 
and that I think that there's uh, wisdom in what they have to say. And eventually they'll get tired of listening to their voice, I hope. <laughs> but that's just a hope. <laughs> Let's say you're able to go to a dinner conversation, a dinner at someone's house before too long. And the person sitting next to you is someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Well, I used to say that I'm a physicist, but that stopped the conversation right then and there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I start a conversation by asking them what they like, asking them their background, and letting them amplify comments. And then I have a hook, a hook on which mm -hmm. I can then uh, engage with the conversation with them. But the main thing is to get them to start talking. That's the main thing. What gives you confidence? Well, I'm an optimist, and I like to quote from General Dwight Eisenhower, who once said that pessimists never win wars. Wars are always mm -hmm. won by optimists. Not because they're always right, but because unless you are an optimist, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. And uh, Richard Feynman was, once was asked, how can you make great discoveries? And of course, you have to be optimistic about these things. But, uh, you know, you have to dig a lot, but you have to have taste. You have to know where to dig. Okay. Mm. And so, um, anyway, for all those reasons, uh, for all those reasons, that's the way I think. I'm optimistic about things. You dig often enough and you find something. And also, optimists live longer than pessimists. That's been shown oh, in medical well, study after medical study. Pessimists don't live as long as optimists. Oh, good. Now, that what the last question is, what book changed your life? Well, it wasn't a book. It was the absence of a book that changed my life. That is, when I was eight years old, um, a great scientist had just died, and they had a picture of his desk. That's all. Just a picture of his desk with an unopened book. And the caption said, the greatest scientist of our time could not finish that book. Well, I was, I was mesmerized. I had to know what was in that book. So I went to the library. I found out the man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was the unified field theory, the unfinished theory. And I said to myself, wow, that's for me. Because that book will, quote, allow us to read the mind of God. These are Einstein's words, read the mind of God. And I thought to myself, what could be more nobler than to be part, just a part of this grand search to complete a theory of everything. So this was the absence of a book that steered me in the direction. Now today, of course, I can read that book and I know the dead ends that he was looking at. And today we can correct those dead ends. And you're now in a position to seek the way you can finish the book that he left unfinished. That's the goal. And I tell my students, if you ever figure it out, uh, be sure to tell me first. And we'll split the Nobel <laughs> Prize a... money. <laughs> I've had a wonderful time talking with you today. Thank you so much oh, for joining me. My pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. 
And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Michio Kaku is professor of physics at the City College of New York. A prolific popularizer of science, his most recent books include The Future of the Mind and The Future of Humanity, as well as the book we discussed in this conversation, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. His very active website is mkaku.org. That's M-K-A-K-U dot org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit that sprang from her witnessing firsthand that there's a way to help people in need beyond just giving them money. I think if there's one thing I've learned in 35 years, it's the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. If I just give you a little bit of income but no capability to contribute, to interact. Um, What have I really done? Um, Given you a piece of dignity and money matters, but what we really yearn for as human beings is choice, opportunity, the ability to make our own decisions, the capability to participate, interact, contribute, and feel valued by society. And that's what's missing right now uh, for too many people. Jacqueline Novogratz, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Lucy Applin. She studies how innovations spread within societies. Not human societies, but societies of birds. In particular, how cockatoos in one suburb of Sydney, Australia, picked up and spread a novel way of raiding trash bins. So the birds need to go right onto the rim of the bin and then they need to lift the bin at the handle. They usually do this with their foot and then they need to transfer it to their mouth and then they sort of shuffle down the side of the bin um, until they get to that point where they can push it over so it opens up. And probably because it's so physically challenging, they're also very good at targeting what bin to open So over 90% of the observations of both us and um, the citizen scientists that we recruited to watch out for the behaviour reported that it was on the red-lidded bins, which in Sydney are the general waste bins. So they completely ignore the recycling bins (laughs) and go straight for the bins that they know will have food in it. And through that, we were able to track its geographic spread from observations in only three suburbs to 42 suburbs by the end of the second year. Lucy Applin and the clever cockatoos of Sydney, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening.
Bye-bye.